Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, for over 20 years, online at thepulp.net. This Pulp Event Podcast celebrates the 10th anniversary of Sanctum Books. Comic book veteran, Tony Isabella, talks with Anthony Tallinn, publisher of Sanctum Books, about 10 years in the shadows Sanctum. Sanctum Books recently completed, republishing all of the Doc Savage adventures, and is currently reprinting The Shadow and other pulp heroes from Street and Smith. This was recorded on July 23, 2016, at Pulp Fest 2016, in Columbus, Ohio. Tony Isabella begins. And a hush falls over the crowd. There's a kind of hush. Tonight. This is the 10 years of Sanctum, 10 years in the shadow Sanctum, the story of uh, Sanctum books and uh, the multi-talented Anthony Tolan or Tallinn, because he could be talented Tallinn or talented Tolan, uh, who has had a not just a long career in this field, but has had long careers in at least two other fields that he'll admit to. Uh, my name's Tony Isabella, uh, comic book legend, uh, <laughs> And I, Tony and I have been friends for over 45 years. Uh, so when our, our esteemed friend Will Murray could not be here, uh, I was recruited to interview my friend. Uh, and we're going to pretty much start with that, and hopefully we'll, we'll have room for questions at the end. Um, Tony? Uh, yes, Tony? You come from a background, a family background that includes uh, things that touch on your current uh, existence. Uh, I come from a family of journalists. My mother's uh, parents published a small town uh, northern Minnesota weekly newspaper for 47 years. My father was an associated press editor for 42 years. And actually, uh, his, his articles his feature articles had more national and international play than anyone except AP's top two columnists. He was basically AP's Charles Kuralt in the Midwest. And my dad was also a very good friend. He was for many years a city editor. Of, my dad was city editor of the Associated Press in Minneapolis. And he had a good friend who was the city editor of the Minneapolis Star in the same building named Clifford D. Semek. And Cliff later became a very good friend of mine. I. Uh, worked the registration desk at the first Minnesota Science Fiction Convention in 1968. And uh, back then there was a saying about comic fans that 97% of comic fans wanted to become comic book pros and the other 3% were liars. And there were several people in Kappa Alpha, which is Comicdom's Amateur Publishing Alliance, the first comics Zappa, who... We should uh, Kappa Alpha was founded by Jerry Bales, who, who founded th Comics Fandom. Founded Comics Fandom, basically, and among the members of this uh, APA, even before Tony and I were members of it, were Don and Maggie Thompson, uh, Roy Thomas, Roy Thomas, uh, I think Steve Gerber for a very short time, 
Uh, and then during the years that we were in it, members included Mark Evanier. Uh, Mark Verheiden, who went Mark on to Verheiden. become a story editor and producer of Smallville and Battlestar Galactica. Uh, Wendy Peeney, except she was Wendy Fletcher then. Uh, Richard Peeney, who uh, despite the fact that we all loved, uh, we were all secretly in love with Wendy, he was the guy who got to marry her. Uh, just about, you know, dozens of comic, future comics professionals passed through Kappa Alpha. Which is how right. you and I met. Well, anyway, uh, I had saved up money wanting to go up to New York and uh, pursue a see if I could get a job in comics. And I heard that, uh, I read that Tony Isabella had gotten a job as an assistant editor at Marvel. And uh, later a full editor, but okay. start. And uh, I called Tony up and said, uh, could I possibly crash at your place if I came you know, to New York looking for work? And he said, well, you're welcome to, but Carl Gafford has a much bigger apartment. And I said, Carl's in New York? And he said, yeah, Carl was just hired as head proofreader at DC. So I came up and was hired as assistant editor at Warren on Creepy Eerie Vampirill and Famous Monsters. And then after that did uh, production work on the Marvel Black and Whites and the British Marvels, which were edited by this person over here. And then I went back to Minneapolis, and then I went back to college, and I came back the next year, and that's when I got my job at DC, and my money had run out. But I had a friend who had a penthouse at 49th and Broadway, Tony, who put me up for a couple of months. Now, uh, I should point out that that sounds a lot more impressive than it really was at that time. It was, it was not a five-star hotel at the time I lived in it. However, the apartment that I lived in and which Tony lived in for a while was uh, once uh, occupied by Damon Runyon, the man whose stories uh, formed the basis for Guys and Dolls. Anyway, I, I was hired at DC and uh, among my jobs was proofreading The Shadow and later Justice Incorporated with The Avenger. And in 19, uh, early 1975 was the first and I think only Marvel Comics convention. Yeah. And I was spending most of the time with a woman I'd met named Adrienne Roy, who I would later marry, who I'd met at the famous Monsters of Filmland convention a couple months earlier. But the Monday after that convention, uh, Murder, Inc. bookstore had monthly symposiums. Uh, they'd get a guest speaker at the Steinway Concert Hall. And the day after the Marvel convention, or the last day of the, the last night of the Marvel convention, the guest speakers were Walter Gibson and John Nanovic from the editor of the Shadow Magazine. And that's when I first met Walter Gibson. And not being terribly shy, I went up to get him to autograph my Living Shadow hardcover, and we got into a conversation. And within five months, five minutes or so, Walter had invited me to come up and visit him. At, at his home in Eddyville. And that grew into my co-authoring six chapters, writing six chapters of his Shadow Scrapbook. I did the chapters on radio and film and comic books and such then. Uh, well, he did the portions of the pulps. And Walter had a minor stroke right as that book was being finished. Uh, and I stepped in and finished some of his, some things we realized had to be finished. So. I, just as Walter wrote under the name Maxwell Grant, I have done some writing under the name Walter B. Gibson. 
but that kind of put me on the map as a shadow fan, that I would be the one who worked with Walter in the shadow scrapbook. And there were other reasons it was me and not Will Murray or someone, and it was that I lived five, four or five blocks from the publisher and the editor. So I was a very good, and I had a complete set of the shadow, well, I completed it that year. And, uh, but that, uh, it was a great honor to work with Walter Gibson on the shadow scrapbook. And uh, years later at the Gibson Estate Auction, it was a shock to watch a copy of the shadow scrapbook inscribed to Walter Gibson from Anthony Tolan go for $270. And I know it wasn't my autograph that was bringing $270, it was that my autograph was confirming that it was Walter's copy of the shadow scrapbook. But Walter was a wonderful man and uh, and your long friendship with Walter mm -hmm. has informed so many of the uh, uh, nonfiction pieces in, in your shadow uh, books. And I was also responsible to be the go-between to enlist Walter to write his final text story, which was about the Batman versus Greyface for Detective Comics number 500. And, uh, you know, Walter's health declined after that. He still did some writing, but not fiction. So I was instrumental in getting Walter to write a story. And by the way, he had notes as to what sentences were to be changed to turn it into a shadow story. And so, I mean, he had, you know, believed in recycling. And uh, I gave one of the eulogies at Walter's service. I was probably the last person Walter spoke to because he called me up at like 9.15 one night and he went into a coma later that night. And his wife, I know, always went to bed before nine, so I was probably the last person he spoke to. But Walter was just a wonderful man and a wonderful friend. And it was my background, I think, since my family was in journalism. You know, and Walter had been a newspaper man. And I'd been an amateur magician, and Walter was a magician. So there were, in fact, that, that's how I first got into the shadow, because I was an amateur ventriloquism and, and magician. And back then, every book on magic in the school library or the public library was by Walter Gibson. And they'd always say in the end papers, Walter was a you know, creator and author of the famous shadow mystery novels. So that when they started coming out in paperback, the first one, Return of the Shadow, I picked it up because it was, I'd been a fan of Walter's magic books. So. Uh, well now, um Let's talk a little bit about your DC career, DC Comics career, in that a lot of what you did would, would you would be learning things that you would later bring to bear in, in Sanctum Books. Right, well I was, uh, came up to DC and was hired, uh, the number one rule in comics as to who gets such and such a job, used to be at least, who's in the office today. Yeah. And one day, I was at wit's end, I had run out of money, I was about to head back to, I was staying at Tony's place, I was about to head back to Minneapolis, having not gotten a job in my second time in comics. And I was about to take the most tedious job possible, which is retouching Golden Age art after they dropped the color and cleaning up all the lines. And I brought some samples in to Steve Mitchell, who was Jack Adler's assistant production manager. And it was about 4.10 in, in the afternoon. And Steve looked at them and said, yeah, these are fine. We'll give you work. But you shouldn't be talking to me. You, you need to talk to uh, Carl Gafford because I just gave notice half an hour ago. 
and tomorrow's my last day. And I said, has your job been filled? And he said, yes. And later I said, oh, well, who filled your job in 20 minutes? And he said, oh, Carl Gafford's becoming assistant production manager. And I said, has Carl Gafford's job as proofreader been filled? And Steve said, no. And he said, can you proofread? And I said, well, I come from a journalism family. I was assistant editor of Creepy Eerie, Van Pearl, and Famous Monsters. And he brought me back to Jack Adler, and Jack brought me into Saul Harrison's office, and Saul brought me into Carmine's office, and I started the next morning. <laughs> and I was at DC for over 20 years. But the overwhelming, you know, you make your own luck. You make sure you're there often enough that you can jump on it when, you know, Mike Kaluta. Uh, Mike Kaluta was it at 909, which was the year before I went to work for DC, 909 Third Avenue, they had a little lunchroom and where the freelancers and editors would gather and such. And Mike was once there and, and Denny O'Neill came into the lunchroom just saying, damn, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I just lost another artist on the shadow. You know, it was to be, you know, Alex Toth and then Alex Toth fell through and then, you know, Jim Steranko we couldn't work with, and it was going to be Bernie Wrightson, but he's behind schedule in the Swamp Thing, and they won't let him leave Swamp Thing to do the shadow, even though he wants to leave to do the shadow. And I don't have an artist in the shadow. And Mike Cluda said, could I do it? And Denny left, went down to Carmine Infantino's office, came back and said, yeah, Carmine says okay. <laughs> and that's what really built Mike's reputation. You know. it, yeah, and that, that really is true of comics. I mean, uh, a lot of the things I ended up doing, a lot of things you ended up doing, were just because as people are looking around, they see a familiar face and they go, hey, you could do this. <laughs> and I was hired as, as originally head proofreader, but then I became Jack Adler's assistant production manager. And what had happened is Saul Harrison, who was then vice president and soon succeeded Carmen Infantino as president of DC Comics, um, realized that there were a lot of gray hairs at DC Comics. That most of the people, I mean, Saul had worked on Famous Funnies number one, the first comic book and on Action Comics number one. Jack Adler, my immediate boss, had worked on Action Comics number one. You had Julie Schwartz who'd, and Murray, uh, Julie Schwartz who'd been editing since 1944 at DC and Murray Boltonoff who'd been there a couple years before. Julie, and you had Joe Kubert, who'd started in comics in 1941. And Saul recognized that they needed to start grooming the talent to replace them. And I was trained by Jack Adler and Saul Harrison to take over the quality control of production, you know, and there are a lot of lessons that I learned from Jack Adler in use of color, which I regularly apply in my uh, my sanctum books. I'm thinking of, of Shadow Number 16, where there was a blue logo on the pulp on top of a, a brown background. And they, on a grayscale, if you photographed in black and white, they'd be really the same value. And by just changing the black outline on the shadow to a white outline, it offset it and made it so much more readable and gave a three-dimensional. And those were tricks I learned from Jack Adler. And I also had wonderful editorial training from people like Julie Schwartz. Um, and I was really lucky. I went to work at DC at a time when there were 33 people on staff. About 10 years ago, there were 300. 
including 17 vice presidents and five full-time attorneys on staff at DC. 18, they added a vice president in charge of vice presidents. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, uh, but when I was there, there were 33 people on staff, including the payroll department upstairs. And w there were 27 of us in editorial and production, and that included the president, vice president, business manager, production manager, and their secretaries. So we were a real small team and everyone had to be jack of all trades because we had to be able to step in. And the wonderful thing in the five and a half years I was Jack Adler's assistant production manager is I think Jack asked me to do something five times. He knew I was a self-starter, so I'd come in in the morning and see what needed to get done, what books we needed to get out, and if there was a backup in cover paste-ups, I'd paste up a cover. If there was a backup in art corrections and lettering corrections, I'd correct a book. If the backup was in the dark room and that was holding up the corrections people from doing the corrections, I'd go into the backup dark room and I'd shoot some stats. And then in the afternoon, I checked you know, the printer's proofs and brought them to the editors. I was a liaison between editorial and production. And so every day was different because I just looked and saw what needed to be done and did it. And it was a wonderful, wonderful job. When Jack left uh, and Saul left, the politics changed and I became a freelance colorist and cover colorist. Uh, colored Green Lantern for 18 years and co-colored the Batman books for 17 years with my wife and Teen Titans and there was a period of about 15 years where nine, 85 or 90 percent of the top selling DC comics were colored by Adrian or me and generally as a team. Um, Let me, uh, I want to throw in a, a circle of life trivia question uh, for my friend Tony. Uh, who is the current proofreader of The Shadow and Black Bat? Uh, is Carl Gafford who was the, my predecessor as proofreader at DC. <laughs> and who was a member of Kappa Alpha, along with Tony Isabel and myself. And the, editor, uh, the proofreader, copy editor on The Shadow is Joe Ross, who was an editor at Gnome Press in the 50s and was editor of Amazing and Fantastic Science Fiction magazines in the mid-60s, and has done a lot of copy editing for Arkham House and Centipede Press and such. Uh, but anyway, my DC Comics career eventually ended, but just shortly before that, I was asked to write a 64-page historical booklet on the shadow to accompany a CD set and to select the shows to go in the CD set. Was that Radio Archives? That was Great American Audio. Great American Audio. And, uh, and they were doing an imitation. Radio Spirits was doing Smithsonian historical booklets. And uh, they were doing, wanting to compete with that market and they asked me to give them a price quote and doing the, writing this 64-page booklet, CD-sized booklet, and also on The Shadow, and also to write and narrate a documentary on The Shadow with interviews with the cast members, and to do the production on the book. And I, I could guess, you know, uh, on the documentary, but I didn't know how much to charge for the book and how much to charge for the production on it. But the owner of Radio Spirits was a friend of mine, and I called him and said, look, one of your competition, competitors is doing something like yours and wants me to write the book. And, you know, can I ask how much you're paying your people to do it? And he told me, and 
how much to do production, and he told me, and I said, oh, that's very nice. Would, you know, please keep me in mind if you, you ever need a writer for your books, your Smithsonian books. And he said, well, we're very unhappy with the writer we've had. We've been looking for a new writer. Do you know anything about science fiction? And I said, well, I co-founded the Minnesota Science Fiction Convention. I've had lunch with Arthur C. Clarke and dinner with Ray Bradbury and Isaac Asimov and, you know, uh, was a friend of Cliff Semick and he said, job's yours if you want it. And I ended up doing two books that year, one on radio science fiction and one on uh, radio westerns, and plus the shadow book. And the next year I did two books for Great American Audio and four books for Radio Spirits. And the next year I did like eight for Radio Spirits. And kept mushrooming and eventually there was one year I did 21 of the historical booklets and I was writing 250 scripts a week for a year for when radio was hosted by Stan Freeberg and uh, so I was able to transition when my comic book career ended because I developed gray hair which can be fatal in the comic book business uh, and suddenly, you know, I'd wake up in the morning and realize that that day I had to listen to 10 hours of Jack Benny or 10 hours of The Lone Ranger or 10 hours of The Adventures of Superman or 10 hours of The Shadow. And, uh, and I got to be there at a golden age when these collections were at Sam's Club and Costco and Walmart and Target and Barnes and Noble and Borders. And then, um, the number one sales period, Christmas was number two, but number one was Father's Day. But the fathers and grandfathers who you got old-time radio collections for ended up dying out, and that business kind of went away. And I know the companies doing the booklets are now paying a word rate that is a fourth of what I got. I was getting 40 cents a word, which was pretty good, yeah. you know. And I was also paid to, I'm the only writer I know who generally writes in Quark in page layout with the illustrations in place and doing everything because I'm very visual and I have an idea of how I want it to look. And right about that time, uh, I had been pushing uh, in my contacts with Condé Nast to do, and their attorney, to do reprints of The Shadow and I had Let, done. We're skipping over oh, okay, that we okay. should, that, you know, I have to, you know, I'm kind of his trainer here. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, Let's talk a little bit, not long, because we want to get to Sanctum Books and everything, but your association with old-time radio fandom and some of the amazing right. things you did there. I, I was program director of the Friends of Old Time Radio Convention, and uh, for many years, for 25 years, I directed cast reunions of The Shadow or The Lone Ranger or X-1 or Dimension X or The Mercury Theater. Um, Aldrich family, Great uh, Aldrich family, uh, Great Gildersleeve, where I'd get the original actors and the original cast back together, and it'd be, hey kids, let's put on a show. Except the kids were in their 70s or 80s. But you know, Ken Roberts, who was the announcer in The Shadow from 1932 to 1944, and Margot Stevenson, who was Margot Lane on The Shadow opposite Orson Welles in 1938, and who, you know, really important stuff later babysat my daughter a couple of times. Uh, <laughs> And John Hart, who played the Lone Ranger in television, and uh, John Archer, who played the Shadow in the, during the 44-45 season when Alfred Bester was writing half the scripts. And so I was having great fun directing and, you know, Lon Clark, who was Nick Carter the entire run of the radio show, and there were all these wonderful people. And so 
I'd been doing that for years before I started writing the radio booklets, and that's what got me. And when I was writing when radio was, it was on 300 stations, and it was generally getting an audience of 800,000 to a million per day, per night. Which, you know, when you compare that with the sales on a top-selling comic book these days, it's... 100,000, you know, usually at best. So, you know, people would list, you know, we were having close to a million people listening to The Shadow every week on Fridays. On, on, and that put my, and at the end, Stan Freeberg would say, scripts by Anthony, you know, when radio was, it's scripted by Anthony Tolan. And, um, but eventually, all good things come to an end. And uh, the old time radio became more and more of a niche. And it was time to do something new. And I had the contacts with Condé Nast, and uh, one day Condé Nast's attorney calls me and said, hey, Anthony, um, they'd been having a problem with a company that was doing bootleg editions of The Shadow and Doc Savage, really sh pretty shoddy. You know, they were taking images off of the internet at 72 DPI and printing, you know, and, and uh, the books weren't proofread. And they were, Condé Nast, had not wanted to license the Shadow and Doc Savage for years, but was realizing it was costing them more money in legal fees to fight, you know, that there was a market and one, if there wasn't a legal, you know, they realized that to have good, well-produced books would be a way to prevent the bootlegging and prevent the legal fees of having to, you know, keep suing people over this. So Jerry contacted me and said, uh, who would I recommend among the pulp reprint publishers to publish The Shadow and Doc? And I said, well, uh, Jerry, if you check your files, uh, you'll find a, a letter I presented you with when I saw you last October uh, with a presentation idea that I wanted to do in publishing The Shadow myself. And he said, well, you aren't a publisher, though. And I said, well, I've worked in publishing for 30 years at DC, and I was trained in production, and I'm familiar with the dynamite, uh, sorry, uh, uh, diamond comic book distribution system, and I'm working for Great American Audio, which, uh, not Great American Audio, it was uh, Nostalgia Ventures, which gets their old-time radio collections into Sam's Club and Costco and Barnes and & Noble and Borders, and I had given you a presentation piece, a presentation letter suggesting, and, you know, uh, I'd subcontract the rights to Nostalgia Ventures and they could get it into conventional bookstores while I handled the collector's market. And uh, basically I was told, uh, okay, if you want to do it, it's yours. And they said the one thing is they were concerned because the Shadow's trademark for book publishing was coming, was expiring in something like a month and a half. And they felt my booklets that I'd written for the Radio Spirits collections and Great American might work. They might be able to justify that as booklets. The Shadow, the trademark was fine for uh, records and audio recordings and broadcast and the movies, but they were concerned about the books. And I said, you get me the contract, I will guarantee that by the time, you know, the rights are due, that before that time, you have the book printed and you know for the trademark renewal and I got it to them the day before the deadline and uh, 
obviously as a fan of The Shadow and as a pulp fan, it was a dream to publish The Shadow. And uh, one of the decisions, you know, people have asked me why I did, do, I did not do them chronologically. Tony asked Tony, me why I didn't. why didn't you do them chronologically? <laughs> well, Tony, uh, the first 30 or so shadow novels had mostly been reprinted in paperback by, Joe, by Bantam and Jove Pyramid and were still available for a few bucks each on eBay. And also, the f since I was going for the comic book market, the first year had only had a single illustration at the opening of each novel. And I really wanted to get to the period when Tom Lovell and Ed Cartier were doing the illustrations and where there'd be 10 illustrations for, for a novel because of the market I was selling the book to. And I also wanted to be able to get forwards by uh, people like Ed Cartier. And I felt it would be ridiculous to have a forward by Ed Cartier when it would be six years down the road before I'd start reprinting Ed Cartier's shadow novels. And I had a vision because I, I cared about history. I'd been writing histories on radio and such, where we would combine historical pieces by Will Murray and myself and forwards by Dan Wilson or Dick Ayers or Denny O'Neill or Jerry Robinson, the creator of The Joker, or Everett Raymond Kinsler, who's the last surviving person who worked on The Shadow magazine. Uh, we also had posthumous forwards, never before published, by uh, Lester Dent and Walter Gibson in, in my books. And uh, so I had a vision of giving more than just the novels, giving historical commentary. Will had often interviewed Walter, and in many cases can provide quotes with, from Walter as to how such and such a novel was conceived and what led up to it, and also had access to Lester Dent's correspondence and Doc Savage. Well, that's the other thing. I wanted the rights to The Shadow, and Jerry said, well, would you publish Doc Savage too? And I said, okay, I, I could do that, <laughs> knowing that Doc had been much more successful in, in paperback. And there was the issue that I didn't want to start reprinting the novels like the first ones that had been gone through 15 printings over the years. I wanted to start until I saw there was a market with some of the, the rarer ones. And then we ended up doing the first two Doc Savage novels for the 75th anniversary with a foreword by Lester Dent that had never been published before with historical material by Walter Gibson. And then, and this is one of my couple of things I'd intended in the books. First, other pulp publishers, pulp reprint people, were, public, were charging $17.95 or $19.95 or $25 or even $35 for pulp reprints and facsimiles. And I wanted to go for a larger audience and not scare away people at conventional bookstores. And I also felt that not many people read all the back short stories in the book. So instead, I would pair two novels together. And that allowed me, at times, to take a great novel with a so-so cover and pair it with a good novel with a great cover. And guess what? Take the great cover for the front yeah. cover image. And uh, interestingly, for the first volume of The Shadow, one would think that Will would be, have been the one to have chosen Golden Vulture for the second novel. But it was me, because I wanted to trick the Doc Savage fans into buying the first volume of The Shadow. And Golden Vulture was the one that had been written by Lester Dent as a tryout for Doc Savage and then rewritten by Walter Gibson. 
And I paired that with Crime and Shard, which was one of the great shadow novels, and one which really introduces, uh, it's a villain who infiltrates the shadow's operation and uh, captures his agents, and the shadow is cornered in the sanctum. But it's a very good one in setting up the shadow's operation. One of the things as, as, as your friend and a reader that I find so fascinating about the Sanctum books is they are one of the best values you can find out there. And I, and I don't mean to sound like an ad, but you get at least two novels of the main characters. You often get radio scripts, short stories. You get this great historical uh, stuff uh, by Will, by, by Anthony. Uh, you get silly ass pieces by me every now and then, uh, and Jerry Conway and, and others uh, that Tony knew from his comics days. Uh, and radio people and like radio Margo people. Stevenson. And right. Uh, just ama you know, amazing every you know, month, you know, these amazing books. Well, one of the things that I've just com completed doing is a back feature from uh, the first year or so of the Shadow Comics, which was Iron Monroe, and it was based on a, a character from, by John W. Campbell called Iron Monroe from a novel called The Mightiest Machine, a 1934 astounding serial. And the first two stories were the very first comic book scripting ever by Otto Binder. But Who was notable for doing, he was the main writer on Captain Marvel, he was a major Superman writer. Creator of Supergirl, cult creator of Supergirl and Crypto. Legion, and Legion Superheroes as well? I think, I think he did that? the first story. Yeah. Or this. But, I mean, major figure in comics writing. And then, but he only did the first two. And with the third installment of Iron Man Roll in Shadow Comics, the script writing was taken over by Theodore Sturgeon. And it was the only comic book writing that Theodore Sturgeon ever did. And I learned that because I got a letter when I was working for DC from Theodore Sturgeon saying, hey, some of your friends in Minneapolis tell me you have a complete such collection of the Golden Age comics. Would you possibly be willing to you know, Xerox the Iron Monroe stories for me? Because it's, I wrote them and it's the only, you know, I'd like to have copies. I don't have cop copies of them. And if I could get Xeroxes, I'd really appreciate it. And I, of course, did it in a heartbeat for him. But I've also reprinted, in addition to a number of shadow radio sh scripts that don't survive in a recorded form by Alfred Bester, I wrote, uh, I published a uh, Bester mystery story called The House That Gall Built from the back pages of a Shadow Digest that had never been reprinted. So, you know, these are the kind of special extras that I, I have. My intention when I started this was to give the best value possible at the best price. And this causes me to work about 70 hours a week generally, getting everything up to the, the order of my satisfaction. And you look at the books and the, the impeccable production values on them. Uh, you often come across the original, you have the original manuscripts, so you're actually adding thousands of words on the to the stories. Right, on the Doc Savages. Uh, some of the novels, like Mystery Under the Sea and The Sea Angel, I believe we added 5,000 words that had been cut. Uh, John Yanovic had an assistant editor named Morris Ogden Jones, who loved making cuts. 
in novels and would cut out entirely chapters from Doc Savage novels or half chapters. And as I said, Mystery Under the Sea, it was 7,000 words and it wasn't cut really to make it read better, it was so that they could fit more short stories in the back of the book, which I thought was kind of ridiculous because you buy Doc Savage for Doc Savage. For Doc Savage. <laughs> but Morrisite did. And the other thing is Lester Dent and Walter Gibson were not being paid per word, they were being paid per novel. So if you cut 7,000 words out of a novel, that meant 7,000 words you had to buy from someone else at a cent a word, that was $70 back then. Which that was you, real money back then. Right, which you, you know, but Morris Ogden Jones did this all the time with Doc Savage. He tried it once with The Shadow. And he got to the end of the story and found that everything he'd wanted to cut he had to leave in because Gibson's stories were so meticulously plotted that everything was there for a reason. If it, you know, Gibson was a master of misdirection and it may have appeared that something was just frivolous, but it wasn't. It was there for a reason. So you didn't cut Gibson. By the way, Walter wrote two novels a month for 12 years. He was always about six months or a year ahead of schedule, so periodically Street and Smith would have to ask him to take a month or two off because they had 24 books and novels in inventory. But Walter said each novel generally took one day to research, three days to write a really intensive plot outline. And then it would simply be a matter of 60 hours of typing 1,000 words an hour, uh, which could be, was four double-spaced pages an hour. And I know from editors and assistant editors who worked with him, Trudin Smith said, while it never happened that an editor could have safely turned a Walter Gibson novel in for typesetting, knowing there wouldn't be a single spelling error or grammatical mistake in a 200-page manuscript that had been typed out in between four and six days. Uh, Walter was just this amazing, amazing man. And with apologies to Doc Savage fans, you know, Lester then pretty much admitted that there was a... Is a formula. He said, Doc Savage, it's always a treasure hunt. The treasure could be an invention, but it was a treasure hunt. Walter Gibson told me many, many times that he felt that it would be deadly if the shadow fell into a formula because it came out every two weeks and that you couldn't get by. You could get rid of, by with it on a monthly or bi-monthly series or a quarterly series. But he felt the shadow, you know, had to be as different as possible. And one of the things since Walter, John Nanovic frequently had 20 novels you know, that he could select really different novels. And that's one thing Will and I do. We try and have a theme. You know, it might be The Shadow in England, but we also, within that, make sure that it's two very different novels with very different plots. Uh, it has now been 10 years, as of this month, since the first volume one of The Shadow debuted at the Bud Plant table at Comic-Con. And as you said, 10 years of Spectrum books and, and knowing that you have a marvelous memory, what are your stats for those 10 years? How many, how many books have you produced? Uh, I have done 108 issues of The Shadow, 109, volume 109 is at the printer right now, and that will mean 100, 226 Shadow novels reprinted, which means there are 99 left to go. 
and a lot of those are digests, which will have to be three novels per book. So I'm probably about three years away from finishing the complete shadow novels. And there was a time when none of us thought we'd ever see another shadow novel in print, or you'd ever have, be able to get the shadow novels without paying an arm and a leg for flaking pulps. And one of the things you'll notice about the Sanctum Books edition, no flaking. Uh, and uh, they're much easier to read. Uh, you don't have to worry about harming an expensive pulp when you read them. It has all the illustrations. My late friend Ed Cartier, who did over 800 illustrations for the Shadow magazine, uh, before he died allowed me to scan all of his printer's proofs, which were on better paper. And sometimes they were cropped in the magazine. And so sometimes we have had art uh, that had been cropped in the magazine, but we reproduced the full art. And then, once again, some of the special things. When I was doing Shadow, uh, sorry, Doc Savage, Volume 15, and that was The Red Spider, uh, that had been the story published as In Hell Madonna, uh, written as In Hell Madonna, and it was to be uh, the, a 1948 issue of Doc Savage. And Daisy Bacon, who you saw the panel on last night, came in as editor, and she wanted a return to the more action-oriented pulp stories. And In Hell Madonna was a really thrilling Cold War story with Doc and his aides behind the Iron Curtain. But she wanted to go back to more pulpy. And at the last minute, the printer's proofs had already been done of the art. It was changed, and it was replaced with, I believe it was the Swooning Lady replaced it. Uh, and that's the only Doc Savage story published, and it's the only story in that digest without illustrations, because it was a last minute replacement and they didn't have time to get art done. And so this is another example of some of the things I do in my books uh, to try and give the best value. It was a single Doc Savage novel published without art, and it would have been drawn by Ed Cartier. And so I tried to think of who I knew who I could afford, who had kind of the same sense of whimsy to his art that Ed Cartier had. And Tony and I know a wonderful, our friends of a wonderful comic artist named Joe Staten, who has drawn Batman and Superman and Scooby-Doo and Green Lantern for Dick, years. Currently drawing the Nick Tracy, uh, Dick Tracy newspaper strip, which has just become marvelous for the first time in decades. And so I called, and Joe had started out doing spot illustrations for Amazing and Fantastic in the 60s when Ted White was. Right. And I called Joe and said, look, I've got a Doc Savage story that had no illustrations. I'd like to have it. We discussed it, and he agreed to do the illustrations. So just because, you know, it has very much pulp-like illustrations done by a very good artist. Um, in Shadow Volume 28, I believe, I reprinted a story. I didn't reprint it because it had never been published. I published with the permission of the Gibson family. Oh, that's another wonderful thing. There are people who do jokes about Condé Nasty and such. Uh, and Condé Nast has been wonderful to me in the, this regard. But I got, a con I got a call from Condé Nast's attorney as I was starting this and asked me if I had um, 
the address and contact information for Litzka and Robert Gibson. And I said, well, Walter's widow Litzka is dead, but Robert's still alive. Sure, I, I could get you his information. I said, why do you want it? And he said, well, Condé Nast is aware that it had an oral agreement with Walter Gibson to split the royalties on paperback re on reprints of his books 50-50 with him during his life. And we don't think there was anything in that agreement that pertained to after his death. But Condé Nast has decided it wanted to, wants to continue honoring the agreement. So half the royalties I've sent to Condé Nast for the shadow over the last, okay, over the last uh, 10 years, well, on the Gibson novels, not on the Theodore Tinsley or the Bruce Elliott novels, Half of that money, 50%, has gone to the Gibson family. And I think Walter would be so happy to know that Condé Nast had enough respect for him. You know, and the Gibson family is not uh, destitute by any means. Dr. Robert Gibson was former president of the American Psychiatric Association. <laughs> but he told me that, you know, and I said, well, I wish the books were selling more and the royalties were more. And he said, hey, Tony. When I'm going through the day's mail and it's bill after bill after bill and suddenly there's a $5,000 check from Condé Nast, it makes my day. <laughs> but he said also, though, just to know the Gibson family is just so happy. He said, how many novels from the 30s are people still reading today? And it meant a whole lot to the Gibson family that people are reading Walter's books and that there's a market for it and people still know who Walter is. And uh, since we're running out of time... We, we have, have a few... Will we have... Uh, I have one last thing I wanted okay, to mention. Okay, go ahead. Uh, coming up in just a couple months, of course, we have the black bat now, too, and, and uh, that was the spider that I'm printing. But coming up, uh, Shadow 109 is at the printer, and the next one after that is uh, a month late, but it was when it shipped to comic book stores will be Shadow 110, which is my 10th anniversary volume. And in it are two anniversary novels from the Shadow's 10th anniversary in the pulp. And then by special permission of Dynamite Comics, who has the Shadow comic book rights, I will be reprinting at the back of the book after an article on the comics by me, the very first Shadow comic book story from Shadow Comics number one in 1940, which has never been reprinted. So I think that's a pretty special 10th anniversary volume to uh, hopefully have something that, that will appeal to people. Now, Doc Savage has been concluded. You're publishing The Shadow and The Black Bat. What other series have you got going at this time? Well, I also am at work at what will be a hardcover book reprinting the entire two-year run of The Shadow newspaper strip by Walter Gibson and Vernon Green. But I'm doing The Black Bat, I'm doing The Spider. Um, I'm thinking of possibly doing, and I'd have to get a new contract with this for Condé Nast, but I'd like to continue The Whisperer as a lead feature in a book called Crime Busters with Carrie Cashin and Norgel and the other Crime Busters characters. Um, but right now, I have to say, it's, it took Bantam Books I believe 27 years to reprint in paperback the 182 Doc Savage novels. Sanctum Books has done it in less than 10, nine and a half years. We have done 226 uh, shadow novels now. 
all 24 Avenger novels plus all six short stories, novelettes uh, of the Avenger. We've reprinted the complete first run of The Whisperer from the first 14-issue series of The Whisperer. So these characters are, well, it's great that people are still reading them. And there's been some attrition, partly because some of my readers have died, uh, which just happens with pulp fans. But we're lucky enough to, you know, comic books tend by the 10th issue to be selling maybe a quarter of the first issue. Right. And I may lose 25, sales may go down 25 a year. But one of the things I've also done on these is I try to make the, appeal, the books appeal not only to pulp fans, but old-time radio fans, film fans, comic fans. That's why I have radio scripts. And I have to say, two of my best customers are Radio Archives and Radio Spirits. And they're marketed to people who sell old-time radio collections. So that's one of the reasons I've, from the beginning, tried to do this. And I think we're out of time now. We are out of time. Um, I'd I'm like sorry we did not have time for questions, but you can go to Tony's Sanctum Books uh, booth in the dealer's room where you will find Tony to answer any questions you might have, and you will find these great books available for purchase right here in Columbus, Ohio. And here is Rodney Schroeder, who recently did a couple-page feature on 10 years of Sanctum Books and the 100th volume of The Shadow. And I And the photos of a number of our books and photos of me, and just be glad to uh, take a copy if you wish. It's free, which is certainly an acceptable price. It is really a, a customer-friendly price. And it's a fine newspaper, even beyond the stuff about Tony. Uh, he's got a lot of interesting, it's one of the best monthly free papers I've ever seen because it's got so much content and so much original content. And that's Rodney's free plug for the weekend. Uh, but thank you for coming. Uh, thanks to my multi-talented friend, because I wouldn't be coming to Pulp Fest if it wasn't to see him once a year. And I wouldn't have had a career if Tony didn't put me up in his apartment. It, it's the circle of life. <laughs> thank you so much. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulp Net your link to the online world of the pulp magazines for over 20 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. The Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2016.